The following is Balin Barros Pena and Bernard Tires Talk DIY Mobile Usability Testing from the 2011 Information Architecture Summit. The 2011 IA Summit podcasts are brought to you by UIE's User Experience Training Library with scores of online seminars your team can access on demand. Hear the field's top experts on timely topics and the current design challenges you're facing. Get a free UIE virtual seminar at uie.com slash IAS11. Hi, everyone. I'm happy to introduce Belen Pena, who is an interaction design head with LBI London. And Bernard Tires is a mobile packet core engineer with Nokia Siemens Networks. And this is going to be what usability testing of the future might be like. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Can you hear me? Can you hear me OK? Yeah? Well, you have permission to leave your phones on, so feel free. This is about mobile phones, right? <laughs> well, welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for coming to our session. We are sure that you are pretty tired at this point after almost two full days of conference, and we really, really appreciate the fact that you are here. Our session is called Do It Yourself Mobile Usability Testing. We are Bernard, I'm Belen, and this is a session about usability testing. I'm sure that you have guessed that much. And to run it, we need your help. And the first thing I'm going to ask you to do for me is stand up. Everyone, stand up. Good. Now, you have to pay a lot of attention to this, right? If you don't have a US cell phone with a data plan, please sit down. Awesome. <laughs> if you don't like beer, please sit down. <laughs> wow, this is going to be really hard. And if you're absolutely terrified by the idea of being our test subject today, please sit down. Wow. <laughs> You're so brave. Europeans are just totally gooses compared to you guys. So I'm going to send Werner to grab one of you. No, 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 no. <laughs> so Anna, I'm going to ask you to give me your phone first of all. Oh, I don't have phone with me. You don't have phone with you. Oh. <laughs> we need someone else. I'm going to take your phone. Okay. It's a lovely iPhone. And we have a seat for you reserved. So we're going to ask you to sit down for the moment, right? Now we're good to go. Now, I'm sure all of you recognize this thing. This is a video from usability testing that we did with a prototype. Now, you don't need a prototype to do usability testing. You can do it with, you know, production software, or you can do it with paper. And paper actually works really, really well with mobile. But in this case, and for this session, we are going to assume that you're going to be testing either with production software or with an interactive prototype, without IT prototype. We have gotten into the habit of recording our usability tests. And this is why. First of all, 
because the video help us to remember stuff. So we don't have to rely on our notes. And if we have any questions about anything, we can go back to the video and check the stuff out. The other reason why we record our tests is because video, actually, it is a really powerful communication tool. And it is really powerful to be able to show the design team or your clients what are these sticky points in the software they're trying to produce. Um, to show them real people trying real tasks with their software. And a lot of things happen at that point. That abstract entity that is the user becomes a face, becomes a person. And you create this empathy between design teams and clients and users, and this is really powerful. And that's why, for me at least, we should record always our usability tests. When we record, we record two things, actions and reactions. We record the actions of the user that take place on the screen. And I think you can see the little bubble at the top. That is a click. That is an action from the participant. And we record reactions. The reactions of the prototype or the software we are testing, which also happen on the screen. But also the reactions of the participant we are working with. And being people, we react with our faces. And that's why we record facial expressions. At this point, I have a confession to make. Doing usability testing for mobile software is actually quite similar to do usability tested for mobile software. That's only part of the story. When you are working with mobile, there is always a few extra challenges that are brought into the equation. And simplifying things quite a lot, these challenges can be reduced to three big questions that you need to answer before you run your tests. And the questions are, which phone, which context, and which connection? Now, if you're expecting from me like a recipe answer to these questions, you better stand up and go. Because there are no standard answers to these questions. It totally depends on the type of study you're running and the type of software you're testing. And you will have to make the judgment. But there are a few things I can tell you about each of these questions. So let's start with the first one. Which phone? These are the results of an experiment that Nielsen Norman ran back in 2009, which is like the Cretaceous era of the mobile times. They took 50 people, and they asked them to do some stuff in some websites, but instead of using a computer, using their mobile phones. And then they took the success rates, and they split them up by the type of phone each person was using. And this is what they found. They found that when people use feature phones, and a feature phone is a crappy phone. You know, with a small screen and like a numeric keypad where you cannot install applications or anything. When they used this type of phone, people were able to complete successfully 38% of the tasks that they tried. When they use a smartphone, and a smartphone is something like this, you know, like a phone with a bigger screen and normally like a QWERTY keyboard and stuff. When they use a smartphone like this one, they were able to achieve 55% of the tasks they tried. And when they use what they call a touch phone, which I'm guessing is something like this, you know, a smartphone where you actually input stuff into the phone using gestures on the screen, something like this phone in here, they were able to complete 75% of the tasks. And you might be wondering, why is this lady telling me all this? Well, there's a moral to this story. The usability of the handset is going to affect the results of your test. So if you have a great piece of software and you ask people to do something very easy with a phone that is 
horrible and it's a usability nightmare, the person is going to struggle. Not because your software is bad, because the phone is bad, right? So we need to find a way of minimizing the effects of the usability of the handset in the result of the test. And this is how you do it. Whenever you can, use the participants' own phones. They might be really crappy. They might be full of usability problems. But they are their own phones. And they probably have found workarounds for all those usability issues already. When you cannot do this, and sometimes you just can't, because sometimes you're testing not with phones, but with some sort of a specialized portable device, or maybe you're testing a prototype that only runs in a specific type of phone. So if you can't test with your participants on phones, include some warm-up tasks, you know, like dummy tasks, so that people can get familiar with the functionality of the device they're going to use before they start the real tasks. And that's a way you can minimize the effect of the usability of the phone into the results of the test. And that's the first question. What about the second one? Which context? Well, this is all about that old controversy. Should we test in the lab? Should we test in the field? You know? And in the world of desktop software, of course, a usability lab is not an office. It's not a living room. But there are actually quite a lot of similarities between the two. In both cases, you have a table, right, a desk. You have a chair. The computer is on the desk. And the person is sitting down and is using the computer with a mouse and a keyboard, right? Now, when it comes to mobile phones, the story is a little bit different. You know, we use mobile phones in public transport on the street, you know, when we are like lying down in bed at home, like watching TV, whatever, um, in environments that are very noisy, full of interruptions, that are too bright or too dark. And that is totally, radically different to our immaculate, quiet, tranquil, perfectly lit, wonderful usability labs. So this controversy in the field of mobile actually matters. It matters a lot. And our academic researchers have been trying to work out if there is a real difference between tests in the lab and in the field when it comes to mobile. And they do that by running comparative studies. And in a comparative study, what you do is you do design an experiment, a usability test, and you run it once in the field, and then you run it in the lab, and then you compare the results, and you check in which of them you can find more usability issues, right? And what our academics found out doing these comparative studies is that they actually have no idea what is best. <laughs> this crowd in Finland in 2005 found out that against their own guess, their own hypothesis, it's actually not that different. And they did find the same number of usability issues in the lab and in the field. One year later, this crowd in Denmark ran a similar experiment and they found the opposite. No way. If you really want to find out the usability issues of your mobile software and how severe they are, you absolutely have to do it in the field. So people don't agree on this. But there is something everybody agrees on. Testing in the field is really, really difficult. It is expensive. It is time-consuming. It is complex. So much so that the crowd in Denmark actually entitled their paper, It's Worth the Hassle, right? Because it is a hassle. And in fact, for the majority of the people in this room who work in industry, it's actually a luxury they can't afford. So for us guys, this is the reality. Testing in the lab is just better than no testing. 
And for the majority of the software we design, testing in the lab is just fine. Now, if you have to test in the field, and sometimes you just have to, what if you're developing a mobile money application, right, to make payments? Or if you're developing mapping software? Or if you're creating an application that geologists are going to use in the field to collect data? Where, guys, in that case, you absolutely have to test in the field. Well, if you have to, do it late, right? So you only have to do it once. Plan. Plan your head off and don't run one pilot test. Run as many as you can. And be prepared because something is going to go wrong. And you better be ready when it does. So last question, which connection? And this is about what type of connectivity do I use when I run my tests? Do I run over the mobile phone network or over Wi-Fi? Well, this is a slide that shows how the use of data over mobile phone networks has changed over the last three years. And I think it speaks by itself. I think looking at this, it is a fair assumption to make that most of the usage of your mobile software is going to be done over the mobile phone network. So do not test over Wi-Fi because it isn't realistic. And if you do, you're going to miss issues related to responsiveness, performance, transitions between states. So do not test over Wi-Fi. Test over the mobile phone networks and all their wonderful, you know, drop-in signals and crappy speeds. But don't forget to pay for data costs, right? Because it costs money, and in the States, I believe, quite a lot of money. In Europe, quite a lot of money. So don't forget to pay your participants, right? So that's it. That wasn't too bad, right? It's not that difficult. Ha. There's still another thing you need to solve. There's still another variable in the equation. The small detail of how on earth are you going to record the whole thing? Because we record, right? Because it's important. We went out there, and we checked what people are doing to record their tests. And we found that it's pretty much four ways. There are pretty much four ways you can do this. The first one is wearable equipment. And this involves like funny stuff, like cameras pointing to the screen of the phone in funny places like hats, and also microphones to record what the participants are saying, and unfortunately, a huge amount of batteries and other boxes that you have to carry on belts or backpacks. Now, wearable equipment is great because it allows you to test in the field, right? But we saw it is difficult it's expensive and it's time consuming to set up, and it also can be intrusive, uncomfortable, and heavy for participants. This is the second way using the script capture applications. And you can see how it works. You install a piece of software on the phone, then you install a piece of software on the computer, then you connect the phone to the computer over a Wi Fi network, for example. Then you click trial, then you click OK, and magic. You can see what's going on on the screen of the phone in the computer. This is pretty neat, right? And this is why, because you're going to get really good quality recordings of the screen of the phone. So they're good. But this approach suffers of death by fragmentation. Mobile is fragmented. There are loads of operating systems, and you will not find a single application that will run in all mobile phone operating systems. 
It might run on iPhone, iOS. It might run on Android, maybe on Symbian, but never in all of them. It's not cheap either. So if you're an independent developer, in-house team, maybe you cannot justify the expense. And people are really precious about their phones. And they're not going to appreciate you installing stuff in them. So the third approach is document cameras. And you know what a document camera is, right? It's a camera that is sitting on the desk, and it points down to a document, and you record documents with it. Google went this way for a while. And also, Nielsen Norman, at least in the Cretaceous era of 2009. I actually struggled to find any positive points of this approach. The only one I've been able to find is that that is popular and is well documented. So if you want to set it up, you are going to find explanations on how to do it. But document cameras are not particularly cheap. Participants have to keep within the camera range. So you have a person that is really nervous because it's coming to this place, they don't know what it is, they're gonna do something that involves the word test. You know, they're trying to do something with their phone, with this horrible piece of software that doesn't make any sense to them. And on top of that, they have to keep within the little square so that they don't ruin the test. That's pretty tough. And also, it forces people to use the phone either on a desk or at a really flat angle. And this is totally unnatural. This is how we use our phone. Not like that, right? So, not very good. The fourth approach is mounted devices. This is a rig. If you attach the rig to the phone, the rig has a camera and you can record the screen, right? And they come in two flavors. The ones you can buy and the ones you make. And these are some of them. They're really good because they solve the issues of the approach of the document cameras. They allow people to use the phone naturally. They can hold it one-handed at any angle they want. But if you buy them, they're really expensive. If you try to make them, they're not easy to build. And they're prone to these two problems. If they're too bulky, they can prevent single-hand use of the phone. And if they are too heavy, it can become really tired to use them for a long time in a test. So at this point, we looked back, took a white piece of paper and said, right, this is all great, but all these approaches, none of them is perfect. They all have quite big problems. So let's just stop and think. If we could create the ideal setup for a mobile usability testing lab, how would it be? How would it need to be? And this is what we came up with. It should be easy to put together, it should be cheap, so anybody can use it. It should be repeatable, so that if it breaks, you can get a new one. It should allow people to use the phone naturally, holding the device on one handed. It should support all the shapes, funny shapes mobile phones come on. It should allow you to run tests with participants' own phones. It should capture the screen, the finger actions, and the face of the participant, and should give you enough video quality to show to your clients. So we took the five approaches we just saw, and we did a little matrix to see how they perform against all these criteria, and we have found that the first three, wearable, equipment, 
screen recording applications and document cameras had three axes, and the other one only had two and one. So we discarded those three straight away. Rigs, the ones you buy, they're pretty cool. Lots of ticks, but they're expensive. And there is absolutely nothing I can do about that. So I had to discard that too. <laughs> so we were left with the stuff you make. And we thought, right, if we can create something that is easy to build and that you can replace quickly when it breaks, you're good. So that's what we try and do. And this is the spirit we follow. This is an iPad stand that is built with pencils and rubber bands. Now, it's really crappy, right? <laughs> but it works. So that was the approach we took. It doesn't matter how ugly it is. As long as it works, it's fine. And this is it. No, sorry, this is not it. I'm going to tell you first what we used to build it. And we used Meccano. For those of you who don't know Meccano, it's a kid's toy, five to 10 years old, and you build stuff. I think in the States it's called Erector Set. Yeah? Yeah. So that thing. The exact same thing. That's it. So we used some trunions, a few strips, some nuts and screws, a Jubilee clip, and this is incredibly important, a webcam, a second webcam, a USB cable, some blue duct, an Allen key, a mechanical wrench, screwdriver, a Windows computer, and some sort of a screen recording software. And if you're really, really poor, you can use Cam Studio, which is open source and free. And this is it. A man is ugly. <laughs> but it works. So at this point, We are going to show you how you build it. Right here, right now, for, sorry, what's your name? Joanne. Joanne, for Joanne's phone, right? So while Bernard is working on that, I'm going to ask Joanne to come along. All right. I'm going to ask Joanne to take a seat. Thank you. Very good. So Joanne, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Let me get you. So what do you do? I am a UX designer for custominc.com. Okay. And I've only been there since June. Before that, I was at Travelocity. Right. And before that, I was in school. You were in school, right. And have you run usability tests? Yes, I have. Okay. But have not on mobile. Okay. Have you moderated them? I have. I have moderated. Have you ever participated in them? I have never been a participant in one. I was told when I took one of my first HCI classes is that I could no longer be a user. Yeah. Well, I wasn't today, allowed. That is not true. <laughs> that is not true. I was a user. I was tainted forever. So now how it feels to be in the role of the participant? It's going to be quite different. I'm kind of excited about it, actually. Okay. Are you nervous? Maybe a little, because it's like, okay, I know that we tell all the... You know, when we run a test, it's not a test of you, it's a test of the process. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm feeling like it's going to be a test of me because here I am in front of everybody and they're all going to be watching me and they're going to be recording me. And if I screw up, it's going to look awful. Well, 
John is an expert. She knows already what is going to happen. We're going to give you a task. We're okay. going to ask you to do something in the website with your mobile phone, mm -hmm. right? This is not a test of you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but if you don't do it right... I'm screwed. Now, all these people here are the observers. Now, don't be nervous about it. You know, just ignore them. Right. <laughs> la, 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 la. Exactly. <laughs> We're almost done. Now, this is the cool part, the Jubilee clip. This is really important. This is what attaches the camera to the rig. Oh, I just think this is fantastic. And now we put some blue tech. And the role of the blue tech is twofold. First, it attaches the phone to the rig. But most importantly, Meccano is metallic. If we put the phone in touch with the metallic surface, probably it's going to scratch a little bit. Now, people are precious with their phones. You don't want to return the phone totally scratched, right? That's not nice. So that's what the blue tag does. We're almost ready. Takes a bit of time, but you know, bear with us. Important note, they had to take the cover off the back of my phone, just so you know. Tell your participants, they have to take the cover right. off their phone. I'm going to close this now, and I reveal something fantastic. There is your eye. No, no, oh. no, 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 no. Oh, <laughs> I had to see myself. <laughs> this one up. And now, I'm not vain at all, you can tell. No. Everything is about AMCAP. AMCAP is a great piece of software that comes with this camera. <laughs> And what AMCAP allows you is to run more than one instance of the software and have more than one feed from more than one camera running on this screen. So, if it works, I'll, it's probably easier from here. Oh, there he is. There you go. There you go. Now we're talking. There you go. Okay. Fabulous. That's focus. You have to jiggle a little bit, right? No, 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 All right. Here we are. We have phone on one side. We have um, Joanne on the other side. Thank you. And now, very briefly, I'm going to search the task. And I'm going to give it to Joanne too. Joanne, do you want to read it aloud? Yes. Okay, a task. You are planning a visit to the Denver Zoo after this great session. Go to www.denverzoo.org and find out which bus number will bring you to the zoo from the Colorado Convention Center. Hold on a second. Before you start. I'm going to kick the screen recording software, right? What I'm using now is I'm going to use the screen recording software to record what's going on on this screen. And, John, I'll tell you when you can. Okay. Not a problem. Five, four, three, two, 
run, and we're good to go. I do have the AT&T crappy 3G connection. <laughs> so it's the real thing. It is the real deal. That's okay. Dark. What's going on? I don't know. The screen's extremely dark on my side. It's a bit of a reflection at the moment, Guy. That's because the top lights, that's one of the things you're going to need. You have to make sure you have quite good lightning in the lab. And that will help the camera ah, to keep goes. up the screen a little bit easier. Okay, let's look at a uh, visitor. And I have to find a bus number that will bring me to the zoo? Okay, maybe, maybe directions might give me some clue because none of this looks like things that will get me to the zoo. It tells me how to get around the zoo. Goodness, it's slow. Is there anything at the top while I'm looking? Ooh, there's quick links. I doubt that that's going to get me there. And did I go? Oh, there we go. Okay, just didn't didn't press it good enough. Okay. Can I twist it? You can. Okay. Oh, come on. No, stop. I don't need a ringer. East from the west. Public transportation. Ah, oh, fabulous. RTD's website use it. Trip planner? Oh, okay. <laughs> use Denver Zoo's address. I have to remember this? What the heck? Okay, 2300 Steel with an E Street, Denver. Okay. Ah. Uh, why doesn't it just give me zoo at? RTD well, or. I'm for a few for a second. I'm just going to move this a little bit and make this clear. Okay. All right. Does it bother you? No, no, no. no. It's perfectly fine. Uh, trip planner. I thought I said trip planner. Okay. From. From. The convention. Convention Center, Convention Hyatt. Two, 2300. S-T-E-E-L-E. Doing the test? No, but normally not. Yeah, yeah, of course, the video will tell you how much it lasts, yeah. And if you really want to record time on task on the spot, you can use a timer, you can put a timer on. This is by transit, I hope that that's the right thing. Did you mean? Hyatt Regency Miami. No, I did not mean that. Hmm. Okay. Doesn't like that. Why doesn't it know I'm in Denver? If it's RTD. 656 16th Street? 650 16th Street. Yeah. 650 16th Street. Let's hope it knows street. I don't trust that it knows the state. I don't trust it. I don't trust it. If it showed me Miami when I'm looking for <laughs> All right. I have three schedules. Let's go for that one. It looks like the shortest. Bus number 20. 
Awesome. Very good. Do you have any comments on the website? Was it easy? Was it hard? I can guess your answer, but... <laughs> it was not easy. For <laughs> and there are things that would have made it easier had it said, number one, that I was going to a different site instead of Denver's site. If it said, oh, you're going to RTDs, don't be surprised if it actually transmitted the information. The zoo knows where it is. It should be telling RTD where it is. And if the bus, I mean, I'm dependent now on RTD's usability, not just in Zoo's usability, which theirs kind of sucks too. And directions was not intuitive for me to think, oh, how do I use public transportation? You kind of had to know that that's where you might go. John, how did the rig feel? Is the phone heavy and comfortable? Oh, no, the phone was very comfortable. It was very easy to move around. I was a little frustrated that mine wasn't turning for some reason usually, but that's really about the only issue that I have, but it's light. It was comfortable to turn it. I could see everything just fine. It was great. John, thank you so much. You're welcome. This is for you. Thank you. Thank you. The most important bottle of cold beer. Cold beer. Well done, well Thank you. Right. So the rig. So we're just to finish, going to be really quickly. We need to check how this power rig performs against our criteria, right? So easy to put together. We just saw it. Burner here built it in five minutes. And if you don't know how to use Meccano, your children know. So you get your children or your nephew or your niece to do it for you. That's what I do. So I'm going to put a tick in there. Chip, right. This is how much we spent six months ago when we built this. Now, this is in pounds, which comes to, in dollars, the outrageous amount of $197. So if you don't have that money, or you cannot get your company to pay for that amount of money, look for another job. <laughs> so I'm going to put a ticket in. Repeatable. Now, a good measure of repeatability is how easy it is to get this stuff. You need to build a new one. So this is where you get this stuff. The mechanic and the webcams came from Amazon. Some spare parts of the mechanic we needed came from this online shop that sells mechanic spares. There are mechanospurs shops in the States too. This one is in Europe, but there are there. The blue tag came from BNQ, the Jubilee Clip tube. The USB cable came from Maplin. The screwdriver came from IKEA. And Cam Studio, which you can use to record the screen, is open source. So I'm going to put the tick in there. What about the natural interaction with the phone? When you heard Joanne, it's like, and it's not intrusive. It is 125 grams. And just to give you an idea of how much this is, an iPhone is 137 grams, an iPad is 680 grams, I am 55,000 grams, and a blue whale is what? Like a lot. So, two ticks there. Supports all from factors. We have seen it with an iPhone, but we have built this thing for Phones with numeric keypads, like that slide out, like the Nokia 66. For candy bar phones with QWERTY keyboards, like the Nokia 71, Blackberry Bold. For candy bar touchscreens, and you saw it in action today with the iPhone. And for the most awkward form factor in the market at the moment, which is slider touchscreen with QWERTY keyboard, like the Nokia N900, or the Motorola Droid, 
also. And this is how you can build it for it. This is a HTC set. It has the same form factor, but it just works. So, tick. Run tests with participants on phones. We grabbed someone at random. We didn't talk to Joanne before. We just grabbed her, used her phone, so you can do it with participants on phones. And what about captures the screen face and fingers and gives enough video quality? Today wasn't very good, right? The lighting wasn't great. But this is the type of stuff you can expect. This is quite good. And I would have no issues in presenting this to my clients. You can see everything. Like the screen, like here, the presentation is not great. But you see it in the computer. We can show you later. You can see everything that's going on. What the person is typing, what they're clicking, when they make mistakes, everything. And this is how it looked like when you use a phone with a keypad. You can record both, the keypad and the screen at the same time. And if you need to test something where it's very important to see the fingers, you can use screen edition software and split them up. So you can actually focus on one or the other. So I'm going to put that there. And that's pretty much for me. There's only one more thing I'd like to say. When we're designing desktop software, we might just get away with not doing user research, right? It's not ideal, but we can get away with it because we have been doing it for a long time and because we have a set of well-established, proven design patterns that work across all the desktop ecosystem, for Windows, for Macs, for Linux, right? Mobile is different. Mobile is new. Mobile changes very, very fast. We know very little about the mobile context of use. Mobile is very, very fragmented. And we do not have a well-established, proven set of design patterns that works across all devices and across all platforms in mobile. So the only way, the only way of creating useful, usable, beautiful mobile software is doing user research. So go back to work on Monday and do it. And I promise I will do the same. Thank you very much. I have three questions. That was great. Very practical and useful information. So thank you. First question was for the user. I was wondering if the camera was distracting in any way. Joanne? Initially, it was a little distracting in that I didn't want to do something that would like damage the camera, you know, get it in the wrong place or whatever. But after a while, when you get to concentrate on the task, you kind of forget about the camera. Okay, sorry, another question. I'm assuming that this is done later in the process, so a lot of the design is already baked out, it's already been developed. How do you test like concepts of mobile, like is my question. The same way you do it for desktop software, prototype, fake and edit, you know? Use paper if you have to. Paper works great for mobile, and we are sort of forgetting about paper. It works really well, and prototyping in mobile is hard because, again, fragmentation means that you have to use different tools for each type of phone, but it's well worth it. 
And with something like this, you can use, you know, continuous testing. That's fine. Thank you. That was really cool. Yeah. I used to play with those toys. I think I have a box in my garage for my six-month-old son, so that was really cool. Obviously, it was very painful to see that Denver Zoo is in dire need of a mobile site. And in our agency, that's something that we advocate to all of our clients. But talking to some people during this conference, they didn't think that that was a need. They said that if you optimize the site for mobile browsers, that that should do the trick. But today kind of proved that that's not the case. Well, today we saw two things. Denver Zoo has a desktop website. And it doesn't matter which device you visit it with, it's a desktop website, and it was difficult to use. Like I could see Joanna struggling, trying to click things, to you know, pan in and zoom in, trying to turn the phone, try and get it you know, layout a little bit better. But then Denver Transportation Authority displayed the mobile site, displayed a mobile optimized site. They detected that the device it was coming from was a mobile phone and redirected to the appropriate design. That was much easier. She found the button straight away, right? So it is very important. And if you see, like, I struggle with the same thing. People think it's not that important. But as soon as you present them with a video from a task like this, where they can see people struggling with their desktop design and zooming through and flying through the mobile design, they see it straight away. It is very obvious. So I think we need to be a bit playful and maybe invest in doing this sort of stuff and then show it to people and say, hey guys, you have to optimize this mobile. And that website could have been improved in about four seconds if they took away the flash pop-up thing that you were saying, oh, it's very gray. When I was doing this test as a test, it took me, I would say, 10 seconds to realize, oh, it's a flash thing. It had to load and then once it was finished loading, it went away. So well, what the hell is it there for? If it had known that you were coming from a mobile, okay, remove the flash. Completely. I agree with you completely, yeah. Are there any more questions? No. Nope. Great. You're free to go. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the 2011 IA Summit. For more great user experience design content, visit UIE.com and sign up for our free newsletter, UIE Tips.